0: Hey, welcome everyone. I just uh, closed the door and locked it. So, people that, people that are late are shut into outer darkness. Yes, the door has been closed. Page 18 in How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible and you see at the top there it says the life of jesus christ part two so we have looked at part one on the previous couple of pages and that fits into the life of christ the messiah the one promised in the first part of the bible fits into these three things that i've said throughout that the bible is about creation fall redemption and creation is who god is and what uh... uh, what he expects uh, from us. That's uh, an orientation that we get in Genesis 1 and 2. The fall is in Genesis 3. That's who we are and what our problem is. But then the third thing, and that's a disorientation, but then the third thing is redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. Redemption is reorientation. God making right what has gone wrong in his world. And the Bible says early on, Genesis chapter 3, that that's going to come through a human being that's going to come through the seed of the woman, and you get to your New Testament, which we are in now, and that person is identified as, as Jesus Christ. So we're looking at the life of Christ, and that is that third thing that the Bible's about, redemption. It comes through him making right what has, has gone wrong. This is the member of the human race that Genesis chapter 3 talked about. And as you look at the episodes in the life of Christ, you should see them through that lens, that this is God through this person, Jesus Christ, that the Bible identifies as God having come to earth as a human being, who's making right what's what's gone wrong. So the episodes in his life, the events in his life, where he heals people and all of that kind of thing, they're they're all part of redemption. They're all part of God making it right. And so these are kind of windows into God doing that. That God has endeavored to correct all that has gone wrong as a result of the fall. And that includes people needing healing. The reason stuff goes wrong with us is because of the fall. If it weren't for the fall, we wouldn't get sick. If it weren't for the fall, we wouldn't get old. If it weren't for the fall, we wouldn't die. But all of those things happen because of the fall. But you see in the life of Jesus him reversing all of that. You see him healing people. You see him raising people from the dead. So when you see that, you should be thinking to yourself, ah, redemption, creation, fall, redemption. But in order for that to fully to happen, Jesus is giving, giving insight, he's giving perspective into all of the things that are wrong and what needs to be be made right and he's reversing those but it's all going to be centered of course upon him paying for the sin that caused it in the first place so redemption is purchased on the cross but it results then in all of these other correctives that are caused by, by the fall as well so Jesus Christ is the full answer to the redemption that God is effecting in his world that he's carrying out in his world So if you look at page 18, we're going to see some more episodes in the life of Jesus, but but bear those in mind, that idea in mind of redemption, making it right as as you do. These aren't just random, you know, the point I'm trying to make, these aren't just random events. But that these are included in God's word in in order to picture that for us. So the top of page 18, you see the episode of the woman at the well. In Samaria and the woman at the well in Samaria is important because she's a woman and she's a Samaritan woman and so as you think about Jesus being the Redeemer making things right one of the one of the problems that develops in a fallen world is mistreatment of the vulnerable including women And so Christ shows how women are supposed to be treated. That he has a discussion with a woman is itself not customary. In public, that he's just there talking with this woman. She's valuable, even though she's a woman, in a a society that saw her as second class at best. But she's worse than a woman. Sorry, ladies, to say it that way, but... She's a Samaritan woman. And And the Samaritans are half-breed Jews. And they are the products in the first part of your Bible of intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews. And so they are despised by the Jews. And here's Jesus talking to not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And you may remember from that episode when he talks to her, she changes the subject. you guys remember that? That uh, Jesus says, uh, So where's your husband? And she, uh, he says, you know, you've had four, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Well, that could creep you out. <laughs> Have you been stalking me on Facebook? Have you... <laughs> right? He knows all. He knows all about her. And uh, she changes the stuff. She says, you know, uh, our fathers worship on this mountain, and your father. You guys remember that? And when she says, our fathers worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, they had, the Samaritans had their, their own mountain, and your fathers worship on Mount Sinai. The Samaritans had their own place of worship, because they were hated by the Jews. So they have a separate place. They even had their own first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible that we saw many weeks ago, written by Moses, uh, those are called the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, so it's the, the first five books. That's what Pentateuch means, five books. And they had their own, the Samaritan Pentateuch. So they got their own mountain, they got their own Pentateuch, and the reason they have their own of all this stuff is because of this animosity between Jews and, and Samaritans. Here Jesus is ta- talking to her, and he uh, invites her to uh, eternal life in, in himself. He has just talked to, prior to this, Nicodemus. And that's where we had left off last week, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, you'll remember, was a religious man, a very religious man, and he was, of course, a male. So you have a male religious guy, and now you've got a female Samaritan. And what you're supposed to get out of that is the Redeemer has come for everybody. And and it'll continue. It'll go go beyond that. So you have the woman at the well, top of page 18. After returning to Jerusalem, cleansing the temple, speaking to Nicodemus, that's event 8 on previous pages, Jesus and his disciples remained in that area for a while. Christ's disciples baptized new believers in northeastern Judea. On their way back, Jesus stopped in Samaria, told a woman at Jacob's well he was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And then he has this greater Galilean ministry. Upon returning to Galilee, Jesus began his ministry in and around the greater Galilean area. Now, you've got these places described here. You've got Samaria, Galilee, all of that. You have a, you have a map um, that shows you where these events took place on page 19. You guys see that? So, and, the, and the events are numbered 9 through 16. And so the map shows you, 9 through 16, where each of these things happened. So as you read those there, if you want to look on the map, that's that's where they are. So back to page 18 then. He did much of his teaching and healing in this area. For example, this is when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, this greater Galilean ministry finished the first year and included all of the second year of his recorded three and a half years of, of public ministry. So Jesus does all these, these healings. And again, redemption. He's making right what's gone wrong because of the fall. In the future, that's going to be complete. In the kingdom and in the eternal state, there will be no ailments. There will be no death. That will all be past. And this is a foreshadowing of that with these, with these healings. And these healings were uh, a foreshadowing of that, and they were a second thing. They were a proof of his claims to being the one that the first part of the Bible talks about. In the Old Testament, as it anticipates this coming one, the chosen one, the Messiah, that's the, the title. So I told you guys that, that he is Jesus, that's his name, but his title is Messiah or Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. And in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, as it talks about this one who will come, uh, there's going to be, uh, he's going to heal. And so as part of proof that he is the one that the Bible predicts, he does this healing ministry. So yes, it is benevolent. It has a good effect upon the people that he healed, obviously. It foreshadows what's going to be complete in the future, reversing the effects of the fall, and also proving his claims to to be the Messiah. One of those healings, number 11, is at the Pool of Bethesda. During that greater Galilean ministry, Jesus made at least one trip south to Jerusalem where he healed a man at the Pool of of Bethesda, but he did so on, on the Sabbath. And that creates controversy. Is he supposed to be... He's supposed to be healing people on the Sabbath. But Jesus is making this transition from... Remember, this says that he uh, under number 10, he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And you may remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said things like, You have heard it said, You shall not commit murder. But I say to you, monumental, for him to say, My law supersedes any other law. I'm the lawgiver. So you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, that if you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder already. And he does that a number of times. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So here he he is. He is setting himself up as the God of the law, the one who gave the law. And the one now who can set the law aside, which is what Jesus does. We are no longer under the law in the first, part of, the first part of your Bible. I bring that up because of this healing at the pool of Bethesda. It happens on the Sabbath. And these activities that Jesus did on the Sabbath, you may remember as you read through the life of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that this would create controversy among those who believed that their relationship with God was tied specifically to how well they kept the law, including the law of the Sabbath. So they criticized Jesus for doing anything on the Sabbath. And you may remember he criticized back, saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath. In the book, and that's from the book of John, John chapter 5. Now, in the book of John, remember I told you that I did tell you this that you have the four Gospels they're called that deal with the time that Jesus walked the earth uh, Matthew Mark Luke and John the first four books of your New Testament called the Gospels a particular section of the New Testament but the first three Matthew Mark and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels um, you know they just give you know one episode after another but John is different. The fourth gospel is different. Yes, it's about the life of, and, and teaching of Jesus. But John has a more theological bent. He is showing that Jesus is God. He starts out that way. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then at the very end of the gospel of John, he says, uh, These, uh, this has been written to you so that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of of God. And so he's proving theologically that Jesus is God. To do that, John chose seven signs. And if you were to go through the Gospel of John, he's got seven particular miracles that John chose. Of all the things Jesus did, he chose seven. Seven signs to point to the fact that Jesus is God. And uh, the last one of those, the sign was his resurrection from from the dead. When you get to the end of the Gospel of John, John says, and Jesus did many more signs besides these, many more miracles besides these. And I suppose if all of them, this is John saying this, I suppose if all of them were written, all the books in the world could not contain them. He says he But these are written so that you may know who he is. And he chooses seven in particular. So as you read through the Gospel of John, I encourage you to keep that in mind. um, That he chose those seven signs of all of the things that Jesus did to sign, to signify. That's what a sign is. You know, signify starts with sign. And so it's signify, signify. This is who Jesus points to. This is who Jesus is. Another of his healings is a Phoenician woman's daughter. In the third year, Jesus made two trips north of Galilee. The first was to Phoenicia, where he healed a woman's daughter. And this was significant because she's a Gentile. So do you see what's happening here? Jesus is doing these things to these different people, a Samaritan woman. Now to a Gentile. And we are, tonight, going to get to the fifth book of your Bible, the book of Acts, which we've been going through for many months on our first hour on Sunday mornings. And one of the things we'll be reminded of and that we've seen on Sunday mornings as we've gone through Acts is that uh, that the gospel is now moving out from one nation and one race of people to all nations and everybody. And that's why in the life of Jesus, now you see these interactions. You see these interactions with a Samaritan. You see these interactions with with a a Gentile. And then you have the, the transfiguration. On his second trip north, he visited a mountain, probably Mount Hermon, where he was transfigured. It says in Matthew 17, Before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. What's the significance of that? What's the importance of that in Matthew 17? Well, Jesus is showing his glory. And he is giving a prefiguring of what his appearance will be like when at the second coming, when he returns, in his glory. And Peter, James, and John are the three of his apostles who are with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Where this occurs, they have the privilege of being there. When Peter writes later, Peter talks about this. About the fact that we saw him in his glory. So Peter was was one of them. They fell down on their face as as they saw him transfigured. Uh, so he's just he's giving a foreshadowing again of this is what it's going to be like in the future. And he gives them a glimpse of that. Uh, one of the things that you need to understand about that episode is you see the first reference there. It says Matthew 17. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, Matthew 17 records this, this episode. But just before that, Jesus says this, he says to his group of apostles, he says, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Huh, these guys are not going to die until they see. But lo and behold, they did die. And the second coming hasn't happened yet. So when did that occur? and it's and Jesus says that at the end of Matthew chapter 16 now this is important you remember there were no chapters and verses originally these get added later so we can find stuff so if you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew you read those words and it just continues straight on to what we know as chapter 17 and verse 1 and chapter 17 and verse 1 says after six days he took Peter, James, and John's on, John on this mountain. So when he said at the end of chapter 16, if you're just a chapter reader, and then you end that there, that some of you are you know, going to see the, the Son of Man coming in his glory, but you don't continue to the next verse. When did this happen? After six days, it turns out. And he takes them to this mountain. And sure enough, they see him transfigured before before him. So it's, it's important then, and I belabor it, because we need to be careful about the chapter and verse divisions. Because they can mislead if you're not careful. They can cause you not to see the connections. And that's an extremely important connection. And then there is the move to Jerusalem. At the beginning of the fourth year of Christ's ministry, he left Galilee for the last time, headed for Jerusalem, where a few months later, he would be crucified for the sins of the world. He, uh, Jesus, headed for Jerusalem. And as you read through the, the Gospels, you see Jesus taking a very intentional route to go to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the final act in the drama of his earthly ministry for which he came. He's going to Jerusalem. And Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, and uh, Matthew chapter 16, uh, Peter says, uh, no, don't do that. Jesus says, I'm I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer many things. Die. And Peter says, "Uh uh-uh. It'll never be. You guys remember what Jesus said to him? Yeah, the King James Version says, Get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, Peter's like, Hey, I'm just trying to protect you. (laughs) So, why that? Well, because Jesus, of course, understood that this is a cosmic battle going on here. You know, Satan, Satan wants to prevent what Jesus has come to do. And in Peter saying, you can't go to Jerusalem, you can't do that, he's unwittingly uh, taking the side of Satan on that. And so he, Jesus makes the point and says, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, I must go to Jerusalem. This is what I came for. This is what's going to happen. And this is God's will, and I have come to fulfill the will of my Father. So Jesus was not, you know, just a guy at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was exactly at the right place at exactly the time appointed by the father. And he went to Jerusalem on his timetable. So you remember then he stands before Pilate, uh, the Roman governor. And Jesus tells Pilate, look, you would have no power at all unless my father gave it to you. You guys remember that? So he's in total control of this situation. Uh, We need not feel sorry for Jesus then in that sense. We should be sorrowful that Jesus had to die for sin since it was ours, but not sorry for for Jesus. This was not an accident, and he just was at the wrong place at the wrong time, anything but. So if you have a politician from Colorado named Lauren Boebert, Anybody know that name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's one of the many like crazy people that have popped up in the last few years in the political world. I mean, surely, she's just, you know, certifiable. But, you know, she's conservative, so lots, lots of people like her. But she's crazy. Am I making myself clear that Lauren Boebert? <laughs> and, you know, she's a congresswoman from Colorado. Every two years, um, uh, the House of Representatives have to get reelected, and so we just had an election yesterday and she might lose to everybody's surprise she's only been in Congress for uh, two or four years one or two terms and she might lose which would be beautiful but here's part of why it would be beautiful this woman stood up in front of a crowd of people and said if Jesus had had an AR-15 he wouldn't have been crucified She's advocating for gun rights, and I'm not getting into the political gun rights thing here. That's not my point. My point is, we really don't need people like Lauren Boebert blaspheming the story of Christ. And she's from Colorado. Colorado is a blue state, mostly. She's from the like one red spot, <laughs> yeah, really. And uh, I was contacted earlier this year by a high school friend. I graduated from a Christian school, high school friend that we had not, literally in over 40 years, we had not heard from, seen each other, and I get this email from him. And he had heard my name somewhere and he wrote me this email. And I said, you know, what happened after high school? And he went to Bible college and he met a girl from Colorado, and so he's lived in Colorado for over 40 years, uh, having gotten married and moved out there. He, has been a pastor for the last 15 years in Colorado until he lost his job as a pastor. He lost his job as a pastor because he happens to be in that red spot, that one red spot in Colorado where Lauren Boebert is the representative, where people voted to send her to Washington. So if you've got a church that has people in it that sends her to Washington, what's it going to be like for you to be a pastor? to a congregation like that? I mean, I wouldn't want it. And we went through COVID. And what do you think people in a congregation like that were like during COVID? So they wanted him to be, you know, they wanted him to denounce all the people that they perceived as enemies. Again, I don't want to wax political here. I'm just telling you, people like Lauren Boebert are not heroes to Christian people, even though she tries to make herself one. And yet many people have taken her as a hero. She might lose. Let's pray about that before we leave today, okay? All right. I feel better. Let's move on. And then, so there's all these healings. Jesus, though, has come to redeem, that is, purchase, out of the slave market of sin, redemption in the New Testament is a marketing term, a commercial term, to buy out of. And so to to redeem with his blood out of the slavery to sin and purchase us for himself and to do that on the cross. And so he must go to Jerusalem. And this is all part of reversing the effects of the fall, this larger redemption that's going on, including than the ultimate effect of sin, which is death. So you see number 15 there, Lazarus raised from the dead. Several conflicts arose between Christ and the Pharisees in Jerusalem because Jesus called himself the Good Shepherd and that he was one with God the Father. This caused him to leave Jerusalem and cross the Jordan. But when Lazarus died, Jesus returned to raise Lazarus from the dead. As the story is told in John chapter 11 about that, uh, we're told that Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, who live in a city called Bethany, they are, actually, they are friends of Jesus, that he had frequented their home in the, in the past. And so Lazarus has died, the news comes to Jesus that he has died, and so he goes there. One of the interesting parts of that whole story is as Jesus goes from where he is to Bethany, he takes a longer route than he had to. So, Lazarus has died, but he's not in in a gigantic hurry. He takes some time to get there. And then when he does get there, they say, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And he's been dead for four days at this point. Part of what Jesus is doing there is to just, as he always does, Jesus is never in a hurry. He's always on his timetable. Everything's happening exactly as God has determined it. And he knows what he's going to do with Lazarus, right? He's going to raise him from the dead. And so he says, Lazarus, come forth to the tomb. And even the dead obey his voice. And Lazarus is raised. And Jesus says famously in John chapter 11 and verse 25, John eleven twenty-five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live and he proves it by raising Lazarus now Lazarus later later dies so this is a a resurrection but Jesus resurrection is the one where the resurrected one does not die so there are people who have been raised Lazarus being one but they died later Jesus did not and then there is the final week some of the events of the last week are as follows His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, second cleansing of the temple, teaching, including the Olivet discourse, and that just is a discourse teaching, d- discourse is teaching Olivet on the Mount of Olives. So he is teaching on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called that. You see, it's in Matthew 24 and 25, and there he is talking about his second coming and what's going to happen in his second coming. There's the anointing uh, by a woman, the upper room discourse. We'll talk about, I'll talk about that in a minute in John 13 through 17. There's the Last Supper, his arrest and crucifixion, resurrection, and then his appearances after his, his resurrection. All of that falls under the category of what Jesus has done to redeem. Now, on page... 19. Just like with all of these you have that rectangular box 9 through 16 and the events are the events that are recorded on the previous or on page 17. So I'm not going to go through those because you can do it yourself and I've been going through them for you and I'm just not going to spoon feed you anymore. Okay, You've got to. So you can you can fill those in and then you've got the map there as well. Look at page 20 brings us to the fifth book in your New Testament, book of Acts, and the letters, the epistles. You see that? The Acts and the epistles. The epistles means the letters. And these are the Acts and the epistles, letters of the apostles, part one. Now before we get into the notes themselves, on a previous page from John 13 through 17 was mentioned the upper room discourse. And that Uh, Let me talk about that for a few minutes because that will set the context for going to this fifth book, the book of Acts. Because that upper room discourse, teaching, so-called because they were in an upper room, and it's five chapters, John 13 through 17, and those five chapters all happen on one evening. So it's a lot of stuff in five chapters, all happening the night before Jesus is crucified. And it begins in chapter 13, you remember, with the Last Supper. And Jesus washes the feet of the uh, apostles. This is where Judas then goes out into the night to betray him. He institutes the Lord's table that we now, 2,000 years later, Observe, because the Bible tells us to do that until he returns as a memorial of his death on the cross for, for us. So John 13, he does that, the Last Supper, the institution of the Lord's Table. And then John 14 begins, you stop letting your hearts be troubled. So their hearts are troubled. Why are their hearts troubled? He's been telling them, "It's I'm leaving. And the time has come. And this is the night before. So their hearts are troubled, but he says, stop letting. So the hearts are troubled, but he says, stop. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also." Jesus begins now to comfort their their hearts, John 14. And as he goes on from John 14, 15, and 16, this is all about now preparing them for what's going to happen. They're troubled. He's trying to still their troubled hearts. And one of the chief ways that he comforts them is by saying, I'm leaving, but not really. I'm leaving physically. I'm going to return to the Father. But I'm going to leave you another comforter like me. And John identifies this one as the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to be with you. My presence is going to be with you. I've been with you physically. Now my presence is going to be with you spiritually in the form of the, the Holy Spirit. And in John 14, 15, and 16, he teaches about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit will will do with them. And one of the really important things the Holy Spirit will do with the apostles in John 14 and verse 26 is, Jesus says, He, the Holy Spirit, will, I'm quoting, bring to your remembrance everything that I've commanded you. Now, why that? Well, because they're going to need to preach what Jesus said. Some of them are going to write down what Jesus said. John is going to write the book of John. In fact, the very book where Jesus says that, John wrote. Matthew is going to write the book of Matthew. They're going to have to remember this. And the Holy Spirit is going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've commanded to you. Now, That promise is not a promise to you personally or me personally. That's a promise to the apostles. I mean, the way way I know this is because you forget stuff and I forget stuff. (laughs) And and so here they have perfect recall in order to be able to teach accurately what Jesus said and then to write it down so that we have it preserved for us. So on the night before he dies, Jesus gives this promise, the Holy Spirit's going to do that. In chapter 16 and verse 13, John 16, verse 13, he's still preparing them for what's going to happen, but I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14 and verse 26, he's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've commanded you. And then in chapter 16 and verse 13, he, the Holy Spirit, is going to, quote, guide you into all truth. So the apostles need this for the work that Jesus is going to have them do. So, lose the idea that you can do the stuff the apostles can do. Okay? They wrote books of the Bible. If you can do that, let me know. Let's talk afterwards. Okay. And so, they are specially chosen, specially gifted to, to do this. Guide you into to all truth. You get to the, toward the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John chapter 20 and verse 22. John says there, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So he's been saying, you're going to have this, the Holy Spirit. It's going to give you these special abilities. Receive now the, the Holy Spirit. And then when you come to the book of Acts, this fifth book in your New Testament. Remember, right near the beginning in chapter 2, there is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 2 on page 20, page 20, look at where it says Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit. You guys see that? Mm-hmm. All right, the day of Pentecost. Many of you have heard of that. And if you've been with us many months ago in our series in the book of Acts, we were in chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. So there's the coming of the Holy Spirit. So which is it? You know, in John chapter 20, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, after that, weeks we'll see after that, there's the coming of the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute, I thought the Holy Spirit, Right? okay, which is it? Well, here's, here's what's going on there. In John, in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles, hear this, to produce the message. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to cause you to remember everything that I've said to you. And Jesus breathes on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit and the ability to produce the message. But then on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit empowers the church to not produce the message, but proclaim the message. So in John chapter 20, you've got these guys being specially gifted to produce it. And in Acts chapter 2, you've got the church being given the ability, empowered to proclaim the message. And that empowerment by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is like something that I've told you about already, going back to the first part of your Bible. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, an anointing from the Holy Spirit, to carry out a particular work. And that's what would happen in in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would empower people to do a particular work. And that's the same thing that's happening here in Acts chapter 2 for the church. Now, because of all of that, because Jesus chose his twelve, Specially, and they are commissioned with abilities that we don't have. And if you have questions about that, I'll be happy to talk to you about it, but it's really true. You're not an apostle. You can't do what those guys did. Okay. And because of that, the book of Acts, look at the top of page 20. It's the Acts, the full title is the, it's not, you know, we call it I call it the book of Acts. You call it the book of Acts. Sometimes we just say Acts. You know, This Sunday I'm going to say turn to Acts chapter 19. But here's the full title. The Acts of the Apostles. That's the full title. Because it's focused on what the apostles did. Why is it focused on what the apostles did? Because Jesus chose them specially to to carry this out and gave them the ability to do it. So that you have passages in your New Testament like Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Built on the foundation. You have Paul himself as an apostle, called later to be one of this small special number. And there are people saying, wait a minute, you're not really an apostle. He had to defend the fact that he was an apostle. And one of the ways he did that was to say, I have seen the risen Lord. In order to be an apostle, you had to have seen Jesus alive. So that's the other reason, another reason you can't be an apostle. Okay. When you get to the last chapter of the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14, Revelation 22:14, 14, John, who wrote Revelation, has given a vision of the heavenly city and the dimensions of the walls and the foundation. And he says the foundation had 12 sides on which are written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's not 13 sides, there's not 15 sides, your name's not on it, my name's not on it, it's the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, And there are other examples, these guys are unique. They're able to do things you're not able to do and that's why it's called the Acts of the acts of the. Apostles. So, top of page 20, the New Testament covers the century approximately from 0 to A.D. 100, 1st century. It can be broken down into four periods. The life of Christ, given in the Gospels. Peter's ministry in Judea from about a decade, 30 to 40. Paul's ministry in his missionary journeys. And then the Apostle John's ministry out of Ephesus to the end of the the century. Here we're going to cover approximately 10 years from the death of Christ to the missionary journeys of Paul. This is primarily the ministry of Peter and then an introduction to Paul which is covered in the first chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. So you have first of all Acts chapter 1 and the the ascension into heaven. So he's come from heaven, he's returning to, to heaven. So he ascends back to heaven. And that's the way the very first chapter of the book of Acts starts. Uh, But Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, and he's already written the gospel of Luke, he's now writing a sequel to continue the work that Jesus did. As a matter of fact, he says that in verse uh, 1. He says, uh, in my first book, that's, that's how it starts, in my first book, well, what would that be? The gospel of Luke in my first book and then he says I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach that's a great phrase because what it's suggesting is the work of Jesus now is going to continue the Gospels were the beginning book of Acts continues it and as you guys heard me say a week ago Sunday if you were here and awake You heard me say it has 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and we are, in effect, Acts 29. We are continuing that work. And it's the work of Jesus, continuing. And Luke says that right at the beginning. I wrote about all that he began to do and teach, but now... And then he goes on to talk about the continuing work that Christ gave to his apostles and through them to his his church. And in that opening chapter, Luke reviews very quickly where he left off in the Gospel of, of Luke. And so he has them, the apostles, gathered with Jesus in Jerusalem after his resurrection at the Mount of of Olives. He records in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, Jesus' final instructions to them, you will be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after that, he ascends in their presence. And they see him go back to heaven from which he came. But he says he's going to return as he he left. And he's going to return to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 14, the first part of your Bible, prophesies, predicts that the Messiah is going to come and set his feet on, and it says the Mount of Olives. He's going to return there in his second coming and establish his kingdom. So Jesus says, I'm going to return there. But in the meantime, you've been given your marching orders. And one of the first things they do in chapter 1 is, you know, there's supposed to be 12 of them. But we've only got 11 at this point because Judas Iscariot was a false apostle. He's committed suicide. Remember? So they choose a 12th, a guy named Matthias. So remember those 12 sides later in the future in the heavenly city with the 12 names? This is how we have 12 names, because they chose the 12. And I would suggest to you as, as well that Jesus had said to them earlier, um, before all of this, he had said to, the, to them that you are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel sitting on 12 thrones in the future. So, this is one of the reasons that Luke, that, Jesus said that in the Gospel of Luke, it's one of the reasons that Luke then, when he writes the sequel, has to then make sure everybody knows, okay, we got a 12. Because Jesus had said, you guys are going to be on these 12 thrones, and so we've got 12 in order to do that. It's one of the reasons that I personally believe there really is a kingdom, like a real kingdom with thrones, And the Apostles sit on it, on on those 12 thrones. uh, Because the Bible is quite explicit about the numbers and all of that. All right. There's so much that I want to say about that opening chapter of the book of Acts. But I don't have time. uh, Because we've only got like five sessions left after this. And I'm supposed to like finish all the notes. Uh, and we are going through a series on the book of Acts, so if you want to know anything about chapter 1, go back like a year <laughs> in our recordings at our website and, and listen to it, but really there's a, there's a bunch there. <clears throat> but alas, the next paragraph, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is a feast in the first part of your Bible. And many of you know that there are these feasts, and one of them is the Passover feast. And the Passover commemorates the passing over of the Israelites during uh, the plague of death that was sentenced upon any who did not have the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. And so they celebrate the fact that God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, killing Egyptian families in order to get the attention of Pharaoh finally with this 10th and final plague. And so that does get his attention so that he does release them. And so they celebrate to this day Passover. But there were other feasts, and one of those was Pentecost. And it's so named Pentecost because Pentecost, it means the word means, remember Pentateuch means five books? Pentecost is 50. Like Pentagon, the Pentagon has five sides to it. A Pentagon has five sides to it. So Pentecost means 50. And Pentecost took place 50 days after Passover. Thus the name. So when the day of Pentecost comes in Acts chapter 2, remember when Jesus was crucified? He was crucified at Passover. Uh, So this is happening the day of Pentecost. This is 50 days after Jesus was crucified. So this is about seven weeks after he was crucified. And Acts chapter 2 says that the apostles are in an upper room in Jerusalem and they're waiting. That's how it starts. And how long have they been waiting by the time the day of Pentecost comes. I mean, if it's 50 days after Passover, seven weeks, uh, Luke does the math for us. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, Acts 1-3, he says in the third verse, he says that Jesus showed himself alive after he raised by many convincing proofs. And he did this for 40 days. So Jesus walked the earth for 40 days after he was raised. And he was in the tomb for three days. So that accounts for 43 of these 50 days. So they've been in, So Luke could have done us a favor if he would have just said, so after they've been there a week. <laughs> but what he says in Acts chapter 2 is, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And that's his way of saying they've been there a week. And why they've been waiting a week, because Jesus said at the end of the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, after he's raised and he's getting ready to ascend back to the Father, he gives final instructions and he says, but you go and wait in the city, the city of Jerusalem, until you receive power from on high. And so that's why they're waiting. And they've been waiting about a week. And then Acts chapter 2 says the Holy Spirit came. And they speak in tongues that they had not learned to signify that this is now a reversal of Babel. And this is going to be a worldwide phenomenon now that's going to take place, beginning here in Jerusalem, as Jesus said that it, that it would. And you have uh, this phenomenon happen. People are confused by it. Peter gets up and explains it. And at the end of his explanation about what's happening, the Bible says in verse 37, Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? They say to the apostles, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so as a result of this, they are baptized 3,000 are baptized in one day. This is the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost with 3,000 new converts baptized into into that first church. This is the beginning, in fact, of the church because it is the first time the baptism of the Holy Spirit has occurred. And that's how someone is initiated into the church, is by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you came to Christ, if you know Jesus Christ, when you came to Christ, you were initiated into his body by the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit? And if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit, they do not belong to him. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says. And so 1 Corinthians 10 and verse... Um, 1 Corinthians 13... No, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13... Quote, we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, the body of Christ. But this is the first time that occurred. So you're initiated into the church, you're initiated into the body of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But when did that occur first? It occurred at Pentecost. And so that's why we say the church began. There was no church prior to um, Acts chapter, chapter 2. If you were here this past Sunday, in our first hour, you heard me talk about in the book of Acts there being really four Pentecosts. It's Acts chapter 2, but then there, uh, where all Jews were present. But then in Acts chapter 8, it's Samaritans, and the Holy Spirit is given to Samaritans, the half-breed Jews. And then in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit is given to God-fearers, Gentiles, but who practice Judaism and then in Acts chapter 19 the Holy Spirit is given to garden variety Gentiles like us. So you have four episodes in the book of Acts where different groups of people are given the Holy Spirit and given the Holy Spirit in a very evidentiary way so that people know that this transition now from one people in one nation is occurring to all people and all nations, Jews and Gentiles, and all of them equally have the Holy Spirit. All right. Acts chapter 3 and verse 5. Peter and John were arrested and then uh, released. So opposition is occurring. These are the effects of the fall. But... The work of Christ transforms, and you see that in Peter because as you in these first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, it's centered on the work of Peter and God's work in Peter's life. And do you guys remember what a coward Peter was just a few weeks earlier? Remember he's denying Jesus? And then you go to the book of Acts and you go, who is that guy? Right? I mean, what a, what a, what a transformation has been made then in, in Peter. And then you come to Acts chapter 6 uh, and 7 and 8. You have the first deacons. And chapter 6 tells us that as the church is growing in Jerusalem, it started out with these 3,000. But then it, uh, when you come to chapter uh, 5, it tells you it's grown to 5,000. Just men, not counting the women and children. So this thing is really growing. When you come to chapter 6, verse 1, it says, when the number of disciples was increasing. So they've got 10,000, and it's still increasing. And then it says a dispute arose. And the dispute arose because they had, the church did, only one church exists in the entire world at this point. It's in Jerusalem. This is the only church. It hasn't spread out from Jerusalem yet. Jesus said it's going to go from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, but it's still in Jerusalem now. And they have this benevolence program and they serve the widows. And it says that the Grecian widows are complaining that the Hebraic widows are being treated favorably. You're giving them more food than you're giving us. This happens in churches. People dispute stuff. (laughs) Problems happen. Thankfully, the apostles take, take action, and they say, look, we need to give ourselves to the Word of God and to prayer. Appoint seven men from among you who will be able to do this, they become the first deacons. Those seven men are Grecian. It's the Grecian widows who are complaining, and so to show there is no favoritism, they chose from their, among their own group to oversee this, this ministry. One of those deacons was a guy named Philip. When you go to the next chapter, Acts chapter 7, Philip stands up and preaches a message, a mighty message. The whole chapter is this message from a deacon named Philip. Excuse me. I said Philip. Stephen. Yeah, thank you. You know, when you're, listen, if it's Stephen and I say Philip, you're supposed to go, hey, bozo. (laughs) It's Stephen, okay? I mean, several of you knew that, and then I'm just kind of going along, and I just, okay, don't let that happen, all right? Help me out here. Help a brother out, will you? All right, So it's, it's Stephen. Stephen is stoned and executed, uh, but it introduces us to a guy named Saul. Saul holds, holds the coats of those who are stoning Stephen, and he approves of what they're doing. In the next chapter, you see Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Paul. About this time, a young zealous Jew named Saul who participated in the killing of Stephen was headed to Damascus to persecute Christians and Jesus stops him in his tracks and he is converted. Jesus says to him, Paul, uh, excuse me, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 of himself later, Paul's his Roman name, Saul's his Jewish name. So it's not he had a pre-conversion name and then a post-conversion name. Sometimes people think that. No, he had a Jewish name, he had a Jewish name and a Roman name, as most people did. Saul and Paul. So Paul writes Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, and he says there, I persecuted the church. Jesus says in Acts 9, You're persecuting me. Paul says, I persecuted the church. Do you guys see what's going on here? You persecute the church, you're persecuting Jesus. Those are, the same, those are the same thing. And then in Acts chapter 10, you have Peter's vision of the food. Uh, and this is for Peter to go to that Gentile that I mentioned, who's a God-fearer. Who, he's a Gentile, but they pra- he practices Judaism, the home of a man named Cornelius. But Peter's not going to go to a Gentile's home because Gentiles are dogs. And so he needs this vision from God to show, no, this is for all nations now. Do not call unclean what I've determined is clean. And then Peter does obey. He goes. Cornelius and his house are, are converted. Acts chapter 11. Paul and Barnabas, are in Antioch, and they are, they are sent out by the church in Antioch. So now the church has moved out from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. There's a church in Antioch that sends them out to go and and spread the gospel. And that's what they do. Barnabas' uh, real name is Joseph. His nickname is Barnabas. His nickname means son of, remember I told you bar means son, Uh, like bar mitzvah. Barnabas means son of encouragement, the son of encouragement. And then lastly, you've got Acts chapter 12. Peter is imprisoned, but he's released by an angel. And there are a group of Christians in Acts chapter 12 who are praying for Peter while he's imprisoned. They're praying for him to be safe and to be released. The Lord does intervene. He is released. He goes to where these brothers and sisters are praying. He knocks on the door. You guys remember? Servant girl Rhoda comes, I mean, gives her name, Rhoda. Poor Rhoda. (laughs) Memorialized for 2,000 years as the person who comes and opens the door and it's Peter. And she runs. And she says, like she can't believe it. You know, we've been praying for Peter to be released. This can't be him. And she goes back and tells the other man, they go, what are you crazy? It can't be him. He's in prison. We've been praying for him to be released. How could he be here? <laughs> oh, that's right. God answers prayer. <laughs> and Then they go and, let, they go and let him in. All right. But then, if you go to page 22, and we're, we're done. Page 22, the key character now shifts from Peter to Paul, beginning in Acts chapter 13. And we will pick up there next week. Thanks. I owe you two minutes, it's (laughs) 8.17.